That'd be a wonderful gift at this stage in our journey through life. As a, as a community, as a campus, as a congregation, as human beings, there's no gift we need more than the breath of the Spirit. A fresh wind, a new wind to blow in our midst, to blow inside of us, to give us a new reason to hope, a new reason to love again, a new reason to belong to each other. Once again, Father, through the Word, speak to us. Let the Word today from the New Testament be clear. Call to us through it. May we hear you speaking. That's, that's all we need. In the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. I've got to confess to you that I, I think this story may be an urban legend. You know these urban legends, how, how they just kind of get sent around the world. Number one, there's no way to, within the story itself to uh, confirm its veracity. Number two, the story came floating to me from out of cyberspace, and I think that generally makes most everything these days suspect. And so, if it's true, it's a very sad story. Either way, it makes a powerful and inescapable point, and that's why I want to share it with you. Bosses of a publishing firm, this is in New York City, boss, bosses of a publishing firm are trying to work out why no one noticed that one of their employees had been sitting at his desk for five days before anyone asked if he was feeling okay. George Turkelbaum, 51, who had been employed as a proofreader at a New York firm for 30 years, had a heart attack in the open plan office he shared with 23 other workers. He quietly passed away on Monday, but nobody noticed until Saturday morning when an office cleaner asked why he was still working during the weekend. His boss, Elliot Wachowski, said, George was always the first guy in each morning and the last to leave at night, so no one found it unusual that he was in the same position all that time and didn't say anything. He was always absorbed in his work and kept much to himself. A post-mortem examination revealed that he had been dead for five days after suffering a coronary. Ironically, George was proofreading manuscripts of a medical textbook when he died. And then two lines, as this has been sent around the world, you may want to give your co-workers a nudge occasionally. And the moral of the story, don't work too hard, nobody notices anyway. That's the one that makes me think this thing is probably an urban legend. I don't know. But if it's true, my friends, if it's true, can you believe that? Dying in the middle of you, I'm dying in the middle of you, and you go on as if life is, you know, you know he's just the same, he's just the same, nothing's happening in his life, he's okay. Makes you wonder how many here today in this wonderful audience, summertime audience, how many people are dying in our midst, longing for somebody to stop and say, you know what, you've been in that same position all your life. Something's up. But now everybody's hurrying around, going through their business. Is, is this story an urban legend? Perhaps. Is it an aberration about American life? I believe it is not. A year ago this month, one of the major publishing houses here in the United States published the work of an obscure academic. That's what Robert D. Putnam has called himself. He said, I'm an obscure academic. Back in 1995, Putnam actually came out with a thesis. He published the thesis, a journal article, under the title, Bowling Alone. In fact, that thesis 
has moved so front and center that because of the way he stirred up the academic circles and now the world beyond, Putnam has gotten an invitation from the president to Camp David. He has appeared, his picture, in People magazine. His thesis is the center of a raging debate today. In a nutshell, here is Putnam's premise. Robert Putnam argues that civil society is breaking down as more and more Americans become more disconnected from their families and their neighborhoods, their communities, and the republic itself. The very organizations that gave life to this democracy are fraying. The metaphor he's used to prove that he's onto something, he's taken the bowling metaphor. Now, I think everybody here has gone bowling. Most of us have anyway. I used to go bowling in college a lot. The bowling metaphor. He's saying, you know what? Years ago, Americans by the thousands belonged to bowling leagues. But now, most all Americans bowl alone. Hence the title of his, his, his scholarly research. Bowling alone. Why is it that we bowl alone in this country? Well, you don't have to be a sociologist or a rocket scientist to figure this one out. Why do we bowl alone? Because of television. Now, Alman, folks, I know about you. You say, I don't watch any TV. Actually, I watch a little bit of news and a PBS documentary now and then. I have heard that so many times, I don't even believe it. Because I've used the same line, by the way. Fact of the matter is, because of the VCR, Saturday nights are oftentimes consumed with that television. Television has changed. We bowl alone now because you can do it all alone. Number one is television. What's another reason we bowl alone? Two career families. You know, my, Karen and I are in two careers. She's a registered nurse, and I do what I do. And I'm going to tell you, sometimes our lives get so hectic around this place that we, we, are like, we are like two ships that pass in the dark. We're on different schedules. Like, oh, is that you? The truth is, the two-career family has, has really hit America hard. That's why we bowl alone so much. What are some other reasons we bowl alone? Suburban sprawl. We're just going farther and farther out, further and further disconnect. Now we're in these little gated, you know, fenced in. This is my family. Stay away. No, no solicitors allowed. What, what's another reason? Well, we have a ch generational change in values. People don't have this longing. We're, America now is a nation essentially of lone rangers. We just think that's the macho way to be. So Putnam is making a point. And he says, you know what? For that reason, the very organization, League of Women Voters, Shriners, Rotary, the monthly bridge club, even a Sunday picnic with friends, it just is not the way we live anymore. Putnam says, we have given up. And as a result, his research is showing, as a result, we have, we have a breakdown, not only in the family, but our neighborhoods. We don't feel as safe in our neighborhoods. We're not able to collect taxes as well anymore. The, the, uh, the, the principles of democracy now are being compromised. Even our health, even our happiness. Putnam says, we sense it. In fact, he calls it our great, our growing social capital deficit. Everyday honesty, it's gone. Putnam writes these words. Put, uh, let's put Putnam on the screen. Americans are right that the bonds of our communities have withered. And we are right to fear that this transformation has very real costs. You know why? Because we are bowling alone. We are bowling alone. Was that a problem? In the early church, well, archaeologists, I have to tell you this, archaeologists have not been able to find any evidence of bowling in the New Testament. The closest they have ever been able to get 
is the discovery of the Roman Colosseum where Christians were bowled over by angry gladiators and hungry beasts. Nevertheless, I find it intriguing. In a, in, in a passage of Scripture that I have read a thousand times, and I'm sure you have too, but as I go back to this, I'm wondering, do you hear it as well? It sounds like this passage is actually appealing to the Christian church. Guys, please, emotionally and spiritually, you don't bowl alone. It seems like the passage is saying it. I want you to see, see if you get the same sense that I do. Open your Bible, please. New Testament, the book of Hebrews. A very familiar line, particularly to old timers in the community of faith. Hebrews, towards the end of the New Testament... If you're watching on television right now, we're going to put the words on the screen. If you have a Bible near you, hey, listen, you're here for the next few moments. Join us. Hebrews chapter 10. I'm in the, I'm in the New Revised Standard Version. Hebrews chapter 10. Just three lines. Verse 23, 24, and 25. Three lines. Hebrews chapter 10. Verse 23. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who has promised is faithful. Hallelujah. And let us consider how to provoke one another to love and good deeds. The, the, the Greek word there, paroxysm, from whence comes our English, English word paroxysm, the Greek word means to goad, to spur. You know, uh, she, she burst into a paroxysm of tears. It just means oh, just an explosion. So what the writer is saying is goad. Come on, spur each other on. To do what? Let us consider how to spur one another to love and good deeds. Final verse, 25. Not neglecting to meet together. The Greek word there, synagogue. From whence comes... That's, a, that's our word, synagogue. Don't quit meeting together. Please, don't bowl alone in the church. It'll kill you. Don't bowl alone. Don't neglect meeting together as the habit of some is. But encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. That, that was new to me. I, I had not sensed the, the passionate feel for community there. You know, you know what the writer is saying? The closer we draw to the coming of Christ, the closer we need to draw to the community of Christ. See? The nearer we come to the end... The closer we should, we should come to our friends. We, in other words, the, close, the sooner it is that Jesus comes, the, let's get together, get together, get together. As the coming of Christ draws near, so should we. That's the bottom line. That's the line I wish you would take home from the sermon today. As the coming of Christ draws near, so should we. Let's put that on the screen, please. As the coming of Christ draws near, so must we. That's the truth. And every hour, every hour that goes by, we're closer to the coming of Christ. A call, a passionate call for community. You know what? I never saw this before until this last week. I just, I don't know why I missed it, but uh, I, I have a feeling the reason I saw it this last week was because since the beginning of spring, you and I have been in, we as a, as a community have been into... Uh, the thinking of community. How can we build community? Am I my brother's keeper? The title of this series. And, and I must confess that the experience we as a pastoral staff had three weeks ago today has had a heavy impact in, uh, on me and, and really coloring how I'm approaching Scripture these days. I'm not going to share that story with you again. You and I were together. If you were in Second Church uh, two Sabbaths ago, that story was shared there. 
I talked about the journey that God very unexpectedly has put us onto as a staff. I wish you would hear the story. Pastor Esther beautifully built on that story, the principle of the story this last Sabbath. And uh, <clears throat> Timothy, next Sabbath, Skip the following Sabbath, Lawrence and Oliver the following Sabbath, uh, uh, on into July, they'll be uh, building on it as well. Because something has, something is happening. Okay, that's the, that's the way I want to put it. I want to be very careful that I don't say, well, we got it all now, because I don't have it all. I'm still, I'm still working through some of this, but, but something is happening. And it has to do with community building. And so if, if you didn't hear, uh, the Sabbath on May 20, uh, the, the sermon rather, on May 26th, Go to the book center, the Adventist book center, right across the street. You can get it on audio tape. Bloom where you're planted. I chose that title. The sermon had absolutely nothing to do with it, so I'm sorry on that, but we just kept the title anyway. Bloom where you're planted, May 26th. If you go on our website, let's put the website on the screen for those of you watching television in particular. PMChurch.org is our website, and the message will be there under May 26th. Bloom where you're planted. Because I don't want to go into the story sharing again. You know, when the realization hit me, and it took one of our staff, by the way, to sense it, to voice it, and then to confront me on it. When the realization hit me, you know what? Here we are, this great emphasis on building community at Pioneer and Andrews. And isn't it, wouldn't it be sad if all the while I'm not experiencing community in my own leadership team? I'm not leading toward community. I'm not even working on community. And I'm asking everybody, hey, please, community, community. How many love community? Good, go do it. But if it's not happening in the leader's life, it will not happen in in, in the circle of those he leads or she leads. Because you see, you can be a leader in your marriage. If you're a leader in your marriage, and I won't say which one of you I'm speaking to right now. If you're a leader in your marriage... You know what? You're never going to have community in that marriage. You're never going to have experience openness and vulnerability and the, and the ability to admit and confess failure and weakness. You will never have it unless you, as the leader in that marriage, take the first step. If you're a leader on an office team, your office team will never experience community to any great depth unless you, leader, you take the, take the initiative. Hey, if you lead a bowling team, your bowling team will never get any deeper than you, the leader. If you want relational depth, you want to experience an openness, a vulnerability, a, 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 an environment in which you are safe to admit, A, your weaknesses, you're safe to share your failures, then if you're a leader, you're going to have to start. It's painful, but you've got to start. Now look at guys, it's not over. The conversations are still going on. I'm talking within my own little leadership circle right now. The conversations are still going on. That's okay. It's okay. Because you know what? That's the way it is with community. You not only talk the talk, you got to do what? You got to walk the walk. It's one thing to talk the talk, but you got to walk the walk. And if, you know, how does the Bible say? Amos 3 3. Can two walk together unless they be agreed? You've got to walk together. No marriage will ever get any deeper, ma'am, than where you are right now in your marriage if one of you doesn't take the plunge and move it deeper in terms of vulnerability, openness, and the admission of failure. If you don't admit failure, <laughs> it just, it just, it, it won't work. And so, you know, of course we're not done. By the way, I've gotten some beautiful letters. And I want to thank you. I talked about a failure. And so if you go and get this tape, you'll hear a failure that I talked about in my life. I know about that. And I got some beautiful uh, letters, and I, and I am grateful for your kindness. But the journey goes on. Because, you see, the point of all of this 
is that there is no other way to experience what Hebrews chapter 10 is passionately calling us to. Calling us to a depth. Calling us to experience community. Don't forsake community building, please. So much more as, as the coming of Christ draws near. All right, now, I want to tell you that I found this last week. I found a book in my library written by Lawrence O. Richards. You know, I've had this book, I've had this book for almost 20 years. I pulled the book out and, and I, I came across some prescient, some insightful observations that Lawrence Richards shares in what happens to a group when the group refuses to be open and vulnerable and admit individuals that refuse to admit their weaknesses within the group. Here's what happens to a group. These are the three dangers. I, I'm, I'm letting you know in advance because I wish you'd pull out a pen. I wish you would jot these three down. We'll put them up on the screen, but these are worth remembering. Three dangers that Larry Richards has come up with. He said, look at guys, if you're not willing to be open, if you're not willing to, to be vulnerable with each other, you will, you will commit these three mistakes. Three mistakes. Let's put it that way. You commit these three mistakes. When we are not open, number one, let's put it on the screen. When I'm not open with you, when you're not open with me, ladies and gentlemen, we deny the gospel. We deny it. You say, well, wait a minute, what's the gospel? I'll tell you what the gospel is. Romans chapter six, 5, verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Now, I want to ask you a question. Has Christ already died? Has He? Yes, He has. Does that mean that you're no longer ungodly? Does that mean you are no longer weak? Does that mean you no longer need that sacrifice? Of course not. If I, if I wear a mask, and the mask says, I have no weakness... The Mass says, I am impervious. I am impervious to your criticism because I'm without need. If I wear that mask, I am essentially denying the gospel we just read. I'm saying, hey, I'm strong and I'm denying the words of Jesus. John chapter 15, verse 5, Jesus said, apart from me, how much can you do? Say it in Spanish. How much can you do in Spanish? Nada. You can do nothing. So when I go around, I say, and I pretend that I'm strong, that I can do it, I'm telling a lie. Because I can't do a thing. There's never a point in your life when you say, now I am strong. We are never strong. We are weak. I need to operate out of that weakness. I've got to, you, you've got to quit faking it. When you hide your weakness and refuse to admit your failure, failures, you deny Jesus' words that you can do Nothing apart from Him. So, Larry Richards has written, and I like this, when we pretend to be something we aren't, we rob God of the glory that is His alone for the growth and change that is taking place in our personalities. We, we just take all the credit ourselves. The Apostle Paul realized this, and he came to view his weaknesses. The greatest Christian who ever lived, he came to view his weaknesses, including physical disabilities, as an opportunity for God to show His power more completely. Paul was utterly vulnerable. He will, he will tell you in his letters what he struggles with. He does not wear the mask. Okay, three. Three acts I commit when I refuse to be open with others. Number one, I deny the gospel. Number two, I cut myself off from others. I do it inadvertently. Is Larry Richards right? Well, I believe he is. Because look, if my group, if in my group or my office or my family, in my marriage, if I have to wear a mask to hide my real self from the others, 
doesn't this logically follow? Then I'll try to fake it. And, and the, the more I try to fake it, the deeper will grow my fear that somebody's going to find out. And because my fear will grow deeper, it's just a logical, it just, it's just a, it's, it's a, it's a, what's this, a, a whirlpool. It just starts sucking you down. In order to avoid risking discovery, I will stay away from all elements of a conversation that have the potential to touch me in my area of failure or in my area of weakness. I'll just say, hey, hey definitely change that conversation. What am I doing? I am protecting what I don't want anybody else to do. And in the process, I cut myself off from enjoying genuine relational depth. You know, we share these words from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Uh, you remember the sermon, Requiem and Resurrection for a Fallen Brother? You can get that on our website, too. Uh, we share this quotation, and now that I, we're going through what we're going through, oh, I tell you, Bonhoeffer seems absolutely right on now. Take a look at this. This is from his wonderful book, Life Together. If you want to read a book on how to build Christian community, it's a short little book, but it's a great book. This German pastor uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He who is alone with his sin is utterly alone. Why? Because I'm not letting you know about me. I'm admitting that I don't have any problems. Hey, I'm all alone. He who is alone with his sin is utterly alone. It may be that Christians, notwithstanding corporate worship and common prayer and all their fellowship and service, may still be left in their loneliness in a crowded room like this. The final breakthrough to fellowship does not occur because though they have fellowship with one another as believers and as devout people, get this, they do not have fellowship as the undevout, as sinners. We can't take the mask off so we can't enjoy real True fellowship. It's, it's a fake. It's a mask. The pious fellowship permits no one to be a sinner. So everybody must conceal his sin from himself and from the fellowship. We dare not be sinners. Whew, you know what they'll do to you if you tell them about that? Many Christians are unthinkably horrified when a real sinner is suddenly discovered among the righteous. How did she get in here? Who let him in? So we remain alone with our sin, living in lies and hypocrisy. The fact is that we are, Bonhoeffer emphasizes, we are all sinners. You see, ladies and gentlemen, if I don't take my mask off, I can't enjoy communion. I just can't because you're not going to risk yourself with me and I can't risk myself with you. Somebody has to set the pace. Somebody has to be the first one to take the mask off. A graceless community, remember this, is an oxymoron. You cannot have community if there's no grace. If I can't let you be you and you can't let me be me, it ain't community. It's pious fellowship where we're fooling each other. It is not genuine grace community because you can't have community without grace. You see, now it makes sense to me. I could never... Let's put James chapter 5 on the screen for a moment. I could never figure this out. Confess your sins and faults one to another. We as a people have been deathly afraid of the confessional. And so we have steered way clear of this text. You will hardly ever hear this text being quoted in our midst. Why? Because I go straight to Jesus. I don't talk, share my weaknesses with anybody else. And because of our defensiveness, we have choked community in our midst. We're so afraid that we might give countenance to a practice that we say we abhor. We're the losers if we choke it off. 
Confess your faults and sins one to another. Take the mask off. Admit you are who you are. You see, when I do not do that, whew, I cannot have community. Oh boy, I love this. Anne Lamott. Yeah, I just wish you could read her book, Traveling Mercies. I shared this with you two Sabbaths ago in Second Service, and I want to put the words up again. When she, She's telling the story of a terrible failure she went through, and you'll get that if you get the tape. This line, is it, it just has stayed with me. It stayed with me for the last three weeks. I said, God, don't let me forget this line. And Lamont says, I have learned that the gift of failure breaks through all that held breath and isometric tension. Remember? <sighs> I'm standing there and getting that picture taken. All that held breath and isometric tension about needing to look good. It is the gift of feeling floppier. I love that word, floppier. I'm keeping it locked in my vocabulary. Floppier. Floppier. It's okay to be floppier. It's a gift of feeling floppier. See? You've got to be, be willing to fail. It's okay to fail. Pick yourself back up off the ground. You'll be okay. You'll get over it. It's really not as bad as you thought it was. Nobody will quit loving you. Nobody will quit caring for you. In fact, if you're in community, when you fail, that community, boom, they're around you saying, hey, all for one and one for all. We're staying with you. Of course. Simon Peter said, I'm going fishing. And he had six buddies who said, you're going fishing? We're going fishing because we're your small group. We're going with you. We're never going to let you out there alone. See, that's a joy. When you can fail, it's okay. All right. Well, there are three, there are three effects. If I'm, if I'm not open with you, if I'm not vulnerable with you, number one, I deny the gospel. Number two, I cut myself off from others. And number three, I like this, I cut others off from help. You say, hey, how, how could that be? Well, let me share with you because Larry Richards tells a story and it works. It's a good point. He tells a story about a guy named Brian. Okay, Christian named Brian. Let me read the story to you. Brian was a leader in his church. We had a Brian here in First Church sitting on the front row. Brian was a leader in his church, a layman. He led the song services, often preached when the pastor was on vacation or out of town, and was always the first on his feet to give a testimony. He was the picture of a strong, vital, victorious Christian. So he couldn't understand it when Doug and Fran... Fran, a young couple who had recently been converted, left the church and when asked why, cited Brian as the reason. When he visited them, he was jolted by their explanation. Well, Doug told him, week after week, we saw how happy you were and heard you tell of all the great things God was doing through you, but we're not happy. We're having an awful lot of problems being Christians. We finally decided we could just never be like you, so we quit. Doug and Fran knew their own inadequacy too well, and they could not identify with a person who seemed so unlike them. Richards, I, I want you to read these words. It'll, it'll penetrate better. To communicate, the, the emphasis is all his. To communicate the reality of God, we must share our humanness. That inadequacy of ours which made us need Him in the first place. If I don't share that, I never needed God. This is what Doug and Fran struggled with. They simply could not identify with Brian. He spoke of the great things God was doing, but never shared his sense of need for God. He never revealed to them the fact that he was like them in his humanity. He couldn't do it. It was too painful. And they left the church 
Oh, this church is this church is a place of perfect people from the pastor on down. Who wants to be a part of this? I'll never make it. I fail too much. There they are, ladies and gentlemen, the three destructive effects when we are not open, when we are not vulnerable with each other. I want to make sure you get this in your notes. I'll put it on the screen one more time. What are the effects? Number one, we deny the gospel. Number two, we cut ourselves off from others. And finally, number three, we cut others off from help. That's why the New Testament is so passionate. I mean, look at the, 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 the Hebrews 10 again, verse 24. And let us consider how to provoke, goad, spur one another onto love and good deeds, not neglecting to meet together, to build community as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. As the day of Christ draws closer, so must we. My friends, we need each other. We really do need one another. We need each other bad, if I can put it that way. We've been having some, some very special moments in our prayer community on Wednesday nights behind the circle, behind the, the wall. We call it HOP, House of Prayer. And in fact, I tell you what, this, this last Wednesday night was absolutely... I have never, uh, musicians, I have never heard Be Thou My Vision sung in a more moving way than two women, Inya and Tara. They sang a keyboard and two voices, Be Thou My Vision, O Lord of My Heart. I mean, it was just, oh, when it was over, it was just like, wow. Well, about four weeks ago, in House of Prayer, Dan Augsburger Jr., my friend, He's the one who prepares our little prayer cards for us. On Wednesday nights, we get uh, little nuggets. And I was looking, four weeks ago, I'm looking at a prayer card that Dan has put together. And I'm thinking to myself, wait a minute. How come I have never seen this before? It suddenly hit me what the word community really means. Do you know what the word community is? Community is unity with a come attached to it. The come leads to unity. It's a, when, when you say community... The come has been attached to it. And so, what would happen if we thought about this? Hey, what's community? It's come to unity. Come. I like that. Come to unity. So that when God stretches out His arms and dies on Calvary in Christ Jesus, what happens? God is saying, come. Red and yellow, black and white. It doesn't matter to me. Literate or illiterate. Rich or poor. Doesn't matter a hell of beans to me. You come to me. And when you come to me, there's unity. Community. That's what community is. You come, the closer we get to the hub of the wheel, the closer we come to each other like spokes. Community. Well, Dan found this quote. Where did he find this? I don't know how he found it. But it's a little book called Sons and Daughters of God. I want to end with this quotation. Take a look at this. Sons and Daughters of God. Let's put it up on the screen. And oh, see, I, I have taken the liberty to change come. I just added the, the letter C-O-M-M to every time the word unity appears. So I don't think it changes the meaning at all. Community and diversity among God's children. The manifestation of love and forbearance in spite of differences of disposition. This is the testimony that God sent His Son into the world to save sinners. Hallelujah. This community is the most convincing proof to the world of the majesty and virtue of Christ and of His power to take away sin. The powers of darkness, watch this, stand a poor chance... When communities around, they stand a poor chance against believers who love one another as Christ has loved them, 
who refuse to create alienation and strife, who stand together, who are kind, courteous, and tender-hearted. Now, here comes the punchline. In community, there is a life, a power that can be obtained in no other way. Wow. Did you catch that last line? Let's put it back up on the screen. In community, there is a life, a power that can be obtained in no other way. Do you need power in your life right now? Some of you are struggling with power. Come on, let's be honest. We struggle with a lack of power. Yes, we do. Do you need a sense of new life within your journey right now? I'm telling you, my friend, you can only find what your heart most deeply longs for in community. In community, there is power, there is life that is in no other place. You don't have to bowl alone. You don't have to go alone. You know what? There are a bunch of us sinners, weak, failing, fumbling sinners. There are a bunch of us now who are willing to admit we would love to have you journey with us. That's community. Community in Christ. There's a piece of paper in your bulletin today. I wish you'd pull that worship bulletin out right now. This will take 30 seconds to do. There's a little piece of paper and it has at the top the title, Small Group Survey. I am so grateful and delighted that Joni and Skip Bell have graciously... Joni's a, a registered nurse up at Lakeland, at Lakeland, and uh, Skip is one of our professors here at the Theological Seminary. I knew them out in Oregon days when we passed it in that conference together. Well, they're here in our midst now, and they, they have really... God has blessed them with a building up of community where they've served, and they've graciously accepted the staff's invitation to help lead us, guide us, kind of be, facilitate this journey into community building. And so they said the other day when they met with us, you know... One of the things we need to do is we, we need to get a feel for the lay of the land. What's already out there? And so I wish you'd take this. Deacons, we've got some deacons here. If you didn't get one, I'd like everybody to have a chance. Some ushers who are here. Just hold your hand up. This is a very simple survey. It'll take you 30 seconds, as I mentioned. But we need the information. A, a, a zero threat kind of survey. So we'd like everybody, please, to fill it out. Particularly Pioneer members. If you're not a Pioneer member, we'd still like to, to know about you. If you're in the community, then please. In fact, it says put your name and phone number. There are two questions for that reason. This is not a trick. But if you do put your name and phone number, it will help us. You'll see. Okay. <coughs> Pardon me. Everybody in the balcony get a, get a survey? Okay, let's do this. I'll put it on the screen for those of you watching on television. Simple little seven-question seven survey. This works. Number one, I am presently participating in a Christian small group. Yes or no? Take you five seconds to come up with that answer. Yes or no? Nope, I'm not. Well, good, but no. Well, I kind of think my Sabbath school class is a small group. Well, okay. If you want to call it a small group, put it down. That's it. Okay, we're done with number one. Please, just two. Now, oh, notice this. Answer questions two through four only if you've answered yes to question number one. And that makes sense, as you'll see. Number two, in my small group circle... In my small group, we... And then circle all these that apply, all right? Number one, we, we, we talk about spiritual issues. 
Do you do that in your small group? Would you circle that? We pray for one another. If you do that, circle that. We feel free to share personal needs. Glad for you. Circle that. Number four, we share a specific ministry. You know what? We're all a part of the divorce recovery team. And uh, so we're not only doing that, but we get together and have fellowship as well. Or we're, we're, we're husbands that uh, repair and we have a, a group of husbands. You know, we, we repair cars for uh, single, single mothers. But, and we also have a prayer group. Well, then just put that down. Just share a specific ministry. All right. Number three. Which of the following, if you said yes to number one, I'm in a small group, which of the following best describe your small group? Put it down. Do you do Bible study? Circle A. Do you pray for one another? Circle B. Do you feel free to share personal needs? Circle C. Do you share in a specific ministry? Hey, I, I, I got off on that, didn't I? Yeah, I think I read the wrong. Let's go back to number three. Which of the following best describe your small group? Sorry, folks. Number one, Bible study. There we go. A, Bible study. B, prayer and sharing. C, support. D, ministry group. Threw you for a minute there. But you can read even when you're listening. And that's a wonderful gift you have. So which one of those? Bible study, prayer, support, ministry. Just circle one. Number four, if your small group shares a ministry or a particular interest, please describe this. This will take five seconds. If you have a special mission... Oh, yeah, we meet after Sabbath school. We huddle up all the mothers in the nursery room. Okay, well, then put that down. If you have a special... Yeah, we're actually raising money for Operation Ireland. That's kind of our thing. Or we're sending bicycles to China. Just, just jot it down. Three words, four words. That's fine. Okay? Now, <coughs> pardon me. The final three questions. Number five. I have had the experience of leading a small group. Yes or no? If you have, would you put yes? Now, I want to... I want to I want to protect you. We are not on the phone to you this next week. I promise you. But we just want to have a feel. In a congregation as big as this, how many people have led small groups? That's what Skip and Joni would like to know. We're not going to nail you. But, but really, if you have, go ahead and put yes. If you haven't, just say no. Number six, I would be willing to lead a small group. Now, you're right. If you would be, we'd like to know. That's why the name and address thing. Telephone number. If you would be willing to lead a small group. We're not calling you tomorrow. This is going to take us a summer to compile this. But we want to have, a, maybe someday we're going to have a meeting. Everybody who wants to lead in a small group, we're going to have a, a seminar or something. Who knows? So that's why we need that information. I would be willing to lead a small group. Be brave. Be bold today. It's June 9. Just put a check mark by that. Yes, if you wish. And finally, number seven. I am not presently participating in a small group, but would be interested in a small group experience. I wish you'd put yes. Now, you don't have to. You don't have to at all. But it'd be nice to know that there, there's, there, there are these people out there that would like to be part or be interested in a small group experience. Ladies and gentlemen, that's it. Turn your survey over. The same ushers who brought the survey to you are now going to pick it up. Everybody, please hand your surveys to the, to the edge of your, uh, of your, of your pew, please. And ushers, thank you for just slipping down the aisle and picking these up. This will be very helpful for us as we put a, get a feel for the lay of the landscape. Now, look, I want to end with a story. Beautiful little story. But I want to, before I get to that story and have a prayer, I want to just make sure that all these get here. so that Because we, we're not having anybody standing at a door today. We'd like to get your survey right now. Just hand your survey upside down. There's nothing confidential on there, but turn it upside down anyway. Just hand it down to uh, the folks at the end of your pew. 
up in the balcony. Yep. Thank you. Those of you watching on television, uh, thank you for letting us do this here. I want to end with a story, a beautiful little story. It comes from Anne Lamott's book, Traveling Mercies. It's the right story to share at this moment. Anne Lamott goes to church in San Francisco. She goes to a church called St. Andrew Church. No relation to Andrews. St. Andrew Church. She has a pastor. Her pastor's name is Veronica. Veronica's a tall woman, and she's African-American. And this pastor leads this community called the St. Andrew Community in uh, San Francisco and loves her pastor. And the pastor ministers out of music, the pastor ministers out of the Word, and the pastor tells stories. And so what I want to end with is a story that uh, Anne Lamont's pastor shared with her. I want to read the story just as Anne Lamont captures it here. She told us this story just the other day, okay? When she was about seven, her best friend got lost one day. The little girl ran up and down the street to the big town where they lived, but she couldn't find a single landmark. She was very frightened. Finally, a policeman stopped to help her. He put her in the passenger seat of his car, and they drove around until she finally saw her church. She pointed it out to the policeman, and then she told him firmly, You could let me out now. This is my church, and I can always find my way home from here. And then Anne writes, And that is why I have stayed so close to mine. Because no matter how bad I am feeling, how lost or lonely or frightened, when I see the faces of the people at my church and hear their tiny voices, I can always find my way home. Let's pray. Oh God, that's it. That has got to be it. Anne's words are a testimony of community. No matter how bad I'm feeling, how lost or lonely or frightened, when I see the faces of the people at my church, I can always find my way home. Dear God, please, 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 make us the church and the community from which all of us, from which we can always find our way home to. Home to You, through Jesus. Amen.